Tonight will be a little bit different than uh, the other 29 Wednesday nights that we're going to spend looking at David. We're starting tonight and we're going all the way through the fall, all the way through the spring. We'll finish when we break for summer in, uh, in the next year. Type lesson, meaning we're going to study the life of David. And before we just jump in and start studying it, I want to spend one evening... Yes, we're going to look at the scripture, but I want to spend one evening talking with you about how we're going to work our way through the life of David and why we're going to work through David's life the way that we're going to do it, how we're going to approach this topic. And so I want to begin, and I want to tell you about a lady named Geneva Lummis. Geneva Lummis is my, was my great-grandmother. She was born in 1908. She died in 2002, and uh, some of you know that Brooke and I got married in Hawaii, and some of our family, a lot of our family went on that trip. She was not able to go on that trip and was not happy that she was not able to go and that we left uh, the mainland to go get married, and she died a couple of weeks after we got back. Um, We called her Mama. That was her, her nickname to us in the family. She lived with us for about a year while I was in high school. Uh, She'd been in New Mexico and she was coming back to Texas and she stayed with us uh, in our dining room for about a year while I was in high school. And uh, if if you've never had your great-grandmother live in your dining room that has no doors and is open to the rest of the house, that's exciting. You you get exposed to a lot of things. And um, Mama... She loved a lot of things in life. Um, I think there was probably a 20-year stretch where she bought every purple and pink outfit in the Neiman Marcus catalog for about two decades in a row. If it was purple or pink, she ordered it, and uh, that was her entire wardrobe was purple or pink. She's got pink on in that one, and you can't really tell in the picture, but underneath it is purple. Um, It's a purple little suit there. So she liked Neiman Marcus, she liked purple and pink, she loved coffee. Um, I never was around her where she had a cup of coffee where she didn't say, that is the absolute best cup of coffee I've ever had in my life. Every time she drank a cup of coffee, she said that. And uh, another thing she really loved, by profession she was an English teacher and had some really fascinating stories about teaching English in West Texas schools through the years that she taught. Uh, But she loved, of all the things she taught as an English teacher, she loved Greek and Roman mythology. She just really geeked out on it. It was her favorite thing, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, I have a book in my office about the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's a book about a book. And she gave it to me, and she's got a note written in the front of it. Every time she gave us a book, she wrote in the front, Richer than I, you can never be. I have a mama who reads to me. So I got that in a lot of books, and it's in my office. And uh, she, she just loved these characters. And she was so excited when, in high school, my English class started studying these things. And she loved it. When I would come home, and she'd say, well, who... Who did you read about today? Tell me the character or the, the hero or the heroine that you talked about today. And so uh, I thought about some of the ones that she loved. She loved Achilles. You remember his mother dipped him in the river Styx when he was an infant. He was invincible everywhere except his heel, which was eventually his downfall. She loved Hercules, the son of Zeus. 
uh, often in sculptures and paintings, has ferocious dogs on his side, uh, ready to attack the bad guys and uh, was a great warrior. She loved Odysseus, who fought in the Trojan War and then journeyed back home on this amazing trip uh, back to Ithaca and shot this arrow through the ends of the, the axes and uh, proved his identity. She loved Prometheus, uh, who you may know that he stole fire from the gods, at least in the mythology. You may not know that Zeus punished him by chaining him to a rock where an eagle came every day to eat his liver. And then his liver would grow back overnight, and the eagle would come back and eat his liver again every day. That was his punishment uh, for stealing fire. And she loved these stories. She loved the characters. She loved the drama behind it. She loved the, all of it, just the excitement of the big, epic tale. And if you've ever spent much time on a college campus and you've taken an, uh, a literature class, many times the text of the Old Testament gets lumped in with all of these other ancient mythologies. It just gets put into one big basket of ancient writing, and it's all just sort of considered one and the same. Uh, There's a bunch of interesting stories. There's a bunch of uh, interesting characters. They get themselves in interesting predicaments, and how do they get out of those predicaments? It's an exciting tale to tell, and many times they get treated just like the heroes of of Greek and Roman mythology. And so you may think of uh, a guy named Noah and all of the animals that the Lord sent to him and he built this big boat and a worldwide flood. I mean, when you tell the story, you just sort of think, yeah, it's kind of like these other big epic tales from the ancient world. You might think of Abraham and Sarah who were far too old to have children, but in a remarkable turn of events were able to to have not just uh, one child, but eventually Uh, a whole family coming from that one child. Maybe you think of Moses and the big epic story of the Exodus and all of the plagues and all of the parting of the sea and the drowning of Pharaoh's army. When you think about those big events, they're exciting and they just sort of sound like things that these ancient heroes accomplished. Maybe you think of Joshua fighting in the promised land or above all, you might think of David who kills the giant and goes on these heroic uh, quests and uh, wins a kingdom and unites a people. And you think, you know, there's a lot of similarities between these Old Testament heroes and what you read in the mythology. But there's also a lot of differences when you read these Old Testament stories and you read about these characters and you compare them to the heroes of ancient literature. And I want us to be aware of that. And sometimes Christians fall into this trap of treating the Old Testament like it's a discombobulated collection of stories about different heroes, and they all sort of teach us how to be nice people, how to be good people, how to be moral people. And then finally, we get to the New Testament, and it feels a little bit more at home, and you can make sense of Jesus and the things that he's saying. And we look at these old stories, and we say, yeah, that's kind of strange, that's kind of exciting. They make for great VBS stories. Uh, We paint pictures of them and put them on the walls of our children's rooms. But beyond that, I don't know that I have a lot of connection with them other than trying to be as brave as them or as courageous as them or as moral as them. When you actually read through the Old Testament, you realize there's not an awful lot of heroes in it. In fact, when you read the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you come away realizing there's really only one major character who's in the story the entire time. 
And that's one thing that sort of sets the biblical narrative apart from all of these other ancient mythologies with their discombobulated, disjointed stories is the Bible is one story, Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's not just a group of stories, it's one story. And the one hero from the beginning chapter to the very last chapter is not Moses or Abraham or Noah or even David. The hero is God. And if you don't get that as you approach these Old Testament stories, you come away and you interpret them wrong and you apply them wrong, and really you just swing the floodgates open for any kind of crazy idea that you want to attach to these stories. When you read them in the context of the Scripture, you realize this is one story and there's one hero, and it's not David, but it's God. And the God of the Bible is different than all of these other gods in ancient mythologies. Right? I'm completely different. When you read the, the Greek and the Roman mythologies, those gods are having affairs and they're stealing things and they're uh, manipulating each other and they're causing alliances and factions and interacting with people in really, really strange ways. And when you read the story of the scriptures, you realize that the God of this story, the hero of this story, stands above all the silliness of human interaction. And he's not just the hero of the story, but he's the holy hero of the story. And you and I got to square that away in our minds before we can ever make sense of anything about David. Eugene Peterson says it this way. This is on your notes. Story is the primary way in which the revelation of God is given to us. The Holy Spirit's literary genre of choice is story. The David story is the most extensively narrated single story in this large story. So there are a bunch of small stories, but they all fit in the larger story. And he's making the point, this may surprise you, and you may have never thought about it, we know more about David than anyone else in the Bible. From beginning of his life to the end of his life, and the people he was related to, and the people he was friends with, and the things that he did good, and the things that he did bad, we know a lot. Peterson says we know more about David than any other person in the Holy Scripture. And so the question for us is, we're going we're gonna to slow roll through the life of David on Wednesday nights. And each Wednesday night, we're going to consider only a single episode of David's life. But tonight, we've got to sort of lay the groundwork of how are we going to approach all of these stories we're about to talk about in David's life. Are we going to approach this like David is just another Odysseus, another... Hercules, and he goes on these great adventures, and we want to try to either be like him or not be like him, or is there something more that we need to take away from the David story? So how are we going to study David's story? Four options. The first one is this. We could study David as a hero. We could approach this study and say David is a great hero, and we want to be just like David. Uh, this is the approach. If you read the Lakato book and the Swindoll book, uh, for the most part, this is how they approach David's life. They just say, look at this guy. This was a stand-up, A-plus, really good dude. And I gave you a long quote, but this is important to see how some people approach David's life. This is from Swindoll. It says, the only one in all of Scripture called a man after God's own heart. This single individual is mentioned more than any 
other Old Testament character in the pages of the New Testament, poet, musician, courageous warrior, national statesman, David distinguished himself as one of God's greatest men. In battle, he modeled invincible confidence. In decisions, he judged with wisdom and equity. In loneliness, he wrote with transparent vulnerability and quiet trust. In friendship, he was loyal to the end. Whether a humble shepherd boy or an obscure musician before King Saul, he remained faithful and trustworthy. Even in his promotion to the highest position in the land, David modeled integrity and humility. What a man of God. And you read that and you say, well, I want to be like David. He sounds like a great guy. I mean, he was put in all sorts of situations and he always modeled integrity and humility and character and he was upstanding. This was one of God's greatest men. Max Licato takes a similar approach in Facing Your Giants. I didn't give you a quote, uh, but the, the gist of the Licato book is David found himself in this situation and he describes it as it's laid out in the biblical text. And then he says, you might find yourself in a similar situation, kind of like David was. And here's what David did that was really, really good. We're saying, hey, I'm going through something, and it's kind of like what David went through. And he did a really good thing when he went through that situation. I should do the same thing. There's one problem with this approach. The approach is problematic because David did many unheroic things in his life. Many unheroic things. And some of the big ones probably come to your mind, but as we go through this study, there's a lot of them that you're probably not even thinking of tonight that you read. And if you really just read what the text says, you come away and you say, yeah, I, there's nothing heroic about that. It was cowardly. It was wicked. It was immoral. It was repulsive at times. Alan Redpath says it like this. The Bible never flatters its heroes. It tells us the truth about each one of them in order that against the backdrop of human breakdown and failure, we might magnify the grace of God and recognize that it's the delight of the Spirit of God to work upon the platform of human impossibilities. As we consider the record of Bible characters, how often we find ourselves looking into a mirror. We're humiliated by the reminder of how many times we have failed. Great has been our stubbornness, but greater still has been His faithfulness. Nowhere is this more true than in the story of the life of David. And I think that's a good balance to bring to this study, just to realize there's some things in David that may be worth emulating, but there's a lot of unheroic stuff, and we can't just explain it away. We can't just pretend that it's not there. So here's option two. We could study David as a villain. And that would be the opposite, right? We're not going to study him as a hero. Maybe we could just approach David as a villain. Just go through a, a thought experiment with me. Imagine you and I went out to lunch, and uh, we're at lunch, and we talk about your family, and we talk about my family, and we talk about how the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl this year, and talk about how I'm going to win my fantasy football league, and then eventually we get to church. Church comes up, and I say, hey, there's this new, this new guy that's been coming to church. You met this guy? His name is... And you say, no, I don't know. I don't know him. Tell me about him. And I say, I'm really excited this guy's coming. Uh, we're thinking about making him an elder. 
at the church. I mean, he is really, this guy's impressive. And you say, well, you know, what, what impresses you about him? Tell me about him. And I say, well, he's an adulterer, for one. And, uh, you know, at one point in his life, he had a mistress. And the whole thing kind of went south. And he actually hired a hitman to kill the husband of the mistress. But the hitman he hired didn't even know he was being hired as a hitman. It was a really crazy situation. You know, it, it kind of all worked out in the end. And uh, he's got some kids. He doesn't really discipline them at all. I don't think he's ever spanked them or grounded them or punished them on any level. But he's got some kids, uh, so that's a good thing. Um, he's, he's done a lot of fighting. Like, he's probably the toughest guy in church. If you need somebody killed, you should go talk to him. Because he's done a lot of killing in his life. Um, yeah, we think he's elder material. We think this guy is great. It's so preposterous, right? It's not even within the realm of possible. Maybe we approach David and we just say, look, this guy's a villain. That approach is problematic because David is called a man after God's heart. And he's remembered as a man of faith. And I want you to look at a few of these scriptures with me. I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 13. And I want you to read verse 13 and verse 14 with me. This is when Saul is really on the downhill slide and God is done with Saul and he's letting Saul know, I'm done with you, Saul. And Samuel is involved in this, speaking for the Lord. 1 Samuel 13, 13, Samuel, the prophet, the last judge, said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And you know, and I know he's talking about David. And when you flip the page just a couple of chapters over, we meet David. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. There's a man after God's own heart. Look at Acts chapter 13 in the New Testament. Verse 22. Jumping into the middle of a story, but you can see the point. It says, when he had removed him, that is Saul... He raised up David, that is, God raised up David. God removed Saul. God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, God said this about David, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. This is a guy whose heart lines up with my heart. And this is a guy who is going to do all of the things that I want him to do, and this is the guy that I'm putting in as king. Look at Hebrews 11. We just made it through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, we've talked about all sorts of quote-unquote heroes in this chapter. And look what we read in verse 32. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. So David gets lumped in in this description that we're about to read. Through faith he conquered kingdoms and 
enforced justice and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire and on and on down it goes. Verse 38, it says, of these people, the world was not worthy. These were unique people, people of faith. Verse 39, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. These people were commended for their faith. That's how David's remembered. And so you, you sort of come to a crossroads as you are looking at the life of David and you're thinking about how to make sense of this. On the one hand, you say, I can't put him up on a pedestal as the hero because there's too many things in his life that just knock him right off that pedestal. But I can't paint him as the bad guy villain completely corrupt to the core because he's a man after God's own heart and he's a man who had faith in the Lord. So how do we study this guy? Option three gets a little bit closer. We can study David as an example. And I'm not saying as a good example or a bad example. I'm just saying as an example. Let's look at his life and see if there are things that we can learn. The reality is David is a lot like you and a lot like me. We're the kind of people who come to church and sing and fill in the notes on a sermon outline and then Monday morning we wake up and we think, I don't have time for a quiet time today. I mean, I was singing to the Lord yesterday with all that I had, but it's a Monday. I don't have time for that. We're the kind of people who come to church and we feel close to the Lord and we feel the Lord speaking to us. We feel God working in our life in some way. And then we find ourselves lusting after the things of the world as if they're going to make us happy apart from a relationship with the Lord. We're just like David. David was a complex person. He wasn't always heroic. He wasn't always faithful. He wasn't always obedient. He wasn't always a dirty, rotten scoundrel. He was a sinner who loved the Lord and throughout his life found himself struggling with sin and his relationship with the Lord and trying to grow and sometimes taking two steps back and sometimes taking a step forward. And he lived the struggle that you and I have probably experienced. We can study him as an example. This approach is helpful because we're supposed to learn about faith and life from the Old Testament. And I can say that with confidence because the New Testament tells us that. The New Testament tells us you should look back at the Scriptures and you should learn this is what it means to have faith this is what it means to follow the Lord. Look how Paul says it in Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Old Testament scriptures written so that we might be instructed. To what end? That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement, the same God who wrote these things in the scriptures, may he grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Do you see the logic of this verse? What we just read in verse 5 says we're going to live in harmony with each other. 
And up at the top, it says, we're going to bail with, uh, bear with the failings of the weak. We're not going to please ourselves. We're going to please our neighbor and build him up. Right? We're going to live in harmony together. How are we going to do that? And right in the middle of it, Paul gives you the answer. He says, the scriptures, they're written for your instruction. They're written so that when you look back and read this, you have a picture of what it looks like to love the Lord and to follow the Lord and to love your neighbor or what it looks like to abandon the Lord and what it looks like to turn on your neighbor and not to live in harmony with each other. Look how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10. Thinking of David, these Old Testament stories being an example for us. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Those are all from the book of Exodus in the book of Numbers. This is Old Testament stories. Verse 6, these things took place as examples for us. What kind of example? That we might not desire evil as they did. Right? Alan Redpath says, God does not flatter these Old Testament heroes. He paints all their sins and foibles for us to see, and it's like we're looking in a mirror. Why? So that you can read those stories and learn from their example. These people abandoned the Lord, and it did not go well from them. And God is giving you this story, giving you this truth in the Scriptures so that you can learn from this example. Verse 7, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Don't indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Why? Because 23,000 fell in a single day. Do you remember that story? That story's there so you remember. Run away from sexual immorality. Run away from idolatry. Verse 9, we must not put... Christ to the test as some of them did. Why? Well, they were destroyed by serpents. Do you remember that? That story's written so that you wouldn't put him to the test. Verse 10, don't grumble as they did. Why? They were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Same word we saw in the book of Romans, for our instruction, for an example. These things are written to that end. So we're going to look at David we're going to study him as an example. We're going to learn about faith and life from the Old Testament. And this approach is good because David is an example of a human being who lived in genuine relationship with God, and this relationship impacted every area of David's life. This is one of the things as I've been studying David that has stood out to me the most, especially as a Western American. Because as Western, modern American people, we are trained from a very young age to think over in this bubble you have spiritual things, Jesus things, church things, and over here you have real life, school, work, politics, sports, all the other stuff. And these two bubbles don't have a whole lot to do with each other. And we're almost sort of taught like you can do whatever you want over in this bubble as long as you don't bring it over into this bubble. Like, you just keep the Jesus stuff over there, and we're happy for you to do your own thing. Just don't try to mix the bubbles. Keep them separate. And we just sort of get trained to think that way as Westerners. When you look at David, he's not perfect. 
He's not always heroic. But his God bubble touches every other thing in his life. And it impacts every single area of his life. The best example of this I can give you just quickly tonight is Psalm 139. We're not going to read it, but just turn there. Psalm 139. This is David just saying, there is no part of me that you, God, are not meaningful to or involved in or relevant to. You're part of everything about me. Psalm 139, you've searched me and know me. When I sit down, when I rise up, you know my thoughts. I don't have a thought bubble that you're not part of. You invade that space of who I am. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know it. I can't surprise you with a prayer or a song or an objection or a lament. You know everything I'm going to say before I say it. Verse 7, I can't get away from you. Where am I going to go to get away from your spirit? I mean, I can go to the ends of the earth, high, low, night, day. I, you're there. I cannot get away from you. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is not recent knowledge. This is knowledge from my very beginning. You, God, don't have a beginning. I have a beginning, and you were involved in every part of my beginning. Formed my inward parts. I praise you. I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Verse 16, in your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me, as was yet there were none of them. You wrote the story of my life before I was even put together, before those days even existed. How precious to me are your thoughts. I can't, I can't add them up. I can't count them. It's more than the sand. When I'm awake, I'm with you. Then he even talks about the wicked, his enemies, and God's part of that. I have enemies, God, and that's not just me and them, but you're in the middle of all of that. Even in hatred. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Inside, outside, I want you to know everything about me. I want you to be involved in every facet of my life. This is not a guy who did it all right. But this is a guy who understood the one true God is not going to stay in a bubble. And if he's part of my life, he's part of all of my life. And he doesn't move in and get to take certain days or certain hours on certain days. He takes all of it. And there's something that we can learn there. Peterson says this, The Bible is conspicuously lacking in models. What it's full of is stories, just like the David story. The David story, like most other Bible stories, presents us not with a polished ideal to which we aspire, but with a rough-edged actuality in which we see humanity being formed. This is a picture of what it looks like when God invades a man's life and touches every part of his life in some way, shape, or form. And there's rough edges there, and it's a slow process. It's not immediate, just miraculous change overnight. But there's change, and it's real. And you see it in David's life. So that leads me to one last thought. We're going to look at him as an example. But most importantly, we can study David as a type of Christ. This is not just important, not just valuable. It's necessary because the David story prepares us for the Jesus story. The David story prepares us for the, the Jesus story. I want you to think about just a few of the similarities between David's story 
in Jesus' story. They both start in Bethlehem. That's not a coincidence. At the beginning, there are shepherds involved and sheep involved. That's not just random. That's intentional. Both of these men are destined and chosen to be the king, even when no one around them recognizes it. Both of these face opposition from enemies, even from their own family members. Both of them enter Jerusalem in royal fashion. Both of them die a lonely death in the Hebrew capital. There's just a few of the parallels. When you look at this story, you realize Jesus is he's reliving the David story, but he's doing it right. He's doing it perfectly. There are differences. Here's a few differences. David performed absolutely zero miracles. None. Think about all the great stories in the Old Testament that involve miracles. David's not in them. No miracles for David. Jesus had no mistress. Jesus didn't ask his friends to murder anyone, even though they offered. We'll kill the town. No, don't do it. Jesus never pillaged a a village. He never camped with the enemy. He never neglected his family responsibilities. Never committed polygamy. No one ever successfully accused him of anything. Never in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. Never said the wrong thing. Never sinned. Perfect. There's similarities in these two stories, but there's also differences. And the first one, the David story, is preparing you for the Jesus story. David's story reminds us that the best king Israel ever had wasn't good enough. After David, it's all downhill. And David wasn't good enough. He was not the one that Israel needed. David could save them from Philistines and giants... David could not save them from David. And he could not save them from themselves. Wasn't good enough. David's story ends without the fulfillment of God's promise. It's a sad ending, really. We remember David for greatness, but the end of his life is absolutely tragic. And what follows after he dies is even more tragic. Look in your Bible at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel 7, this is the Lord making a covenant with David. He's speaking through the prophet Nathan. Let me just read a few verses here. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house... For my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Underline the word forever. You read those verses and you say, that kind of sounds like Solomon. God raised him up. He built the temple. He was the next king. Don't forget that word forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, my put away from before you. In your house, David, in your kingdom, shall be made sure forever, there's that word again, forever before me, 
Your throne shall be established forever. Three times. Forever, forever, forever. And you get to the end of David's life and he dies. You get to the end of the Old Testament story and there is no throne. The throne is gone. The people are in exile. And the riffraff that has come back does not have anything resembling a real throne. And you look at all of that and you say, what about the forevers? And you realize the story's not done yet. David's story ends without the fulfillment of God's promise. You're looking for the next chapter. Last, David's story prepares us for the coming of David's son. Not Solomon, but Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The very next page in the story. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David. That verse assumes that you know all the things about David's life. The good, the bad, the ugly, the rise, the fall of the kingdom. The promise that there will be a throne forever. The reality that there is no throne in the present. And of all the ways that God could inspire the biblical authors to begin the New Testament, it begins like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So how are we going to study David's life? We are going to look at him as an example. We're going to look at his life and we're going to say, there are some things to emulate here, and there are some things that are dire warnings that I need to run away from. There are sins and consequences for sins that I want to absolutely away thinking well I but if that's all you look at in David's life you come away thinking well I better be better than David was I need to be good where he was good and I need to be good where he was bad and it's all on me and you cannot miss the fact that David's story is not just showing you how to be a better person David's story is showing you the big story how God was going to fulfill his promise in sending Jesus. So each week we'll look at David as an example, and each week we will look at David and say, how is David in this story, in this scene in his life, pointing us forward to Jesus? So, one down, 29 to go. All downhill from here. <laughs>